everybody have less than 44? Okay. This lesson I've entitled, Let Us Be Carried to Maturity. Can you mature yourself in Jesus Christ? Can you grow yourself? You cannot grow yourself. You cannot sanctify yourself. And the Bible tells us we're going to have to be carried to maturity. But we've got to be willing to be carried in order to reach maturity. So we're, in, uh, we're studying the book of uh, Hebrews a little bit. I've thrown Hebrews in there. We're also in Revelation with the church of Sardis because they, Jesus went to them and he said, you have a reputation that you're alive. And he said, you're not. They're spiritually dead. They weren't growing. They weren't maturing. And so they had come to a standstill. So I went to the book of Hebrews because there's warnings about coming to a standstill. So I thought the two fit together really well. So the writer of Hebrews, we started this a little bit last week. He's gravely concerned because the Christians of his day, who is he writing to? He's writing to Hebrew, the Jewish Christians who have said, we accept Jesus Christ as our Messiah. They have left the old Judaism where you do the sacrifices and all, and they have now accepted Christ as their Messiah and as their Savior. And that's to whom this book is written. And he's worried because of the actions they are committing and the subsequent consequences that are coming to their lives if they keep turning their back on the Messiah and they keep going back over here and to the Jewish law and, and sacrificing the lambs. So this is the burden of the writer as he begins the book of Hebrews. You are going to fall back into Judaism and it is going to be to your detriment. You will never grow spiritually. So what's their problem? Why are they turning back? Persecution. Okay, it's in your notes. I like y'all to answer me if I ask a question, okay? It's on the screen. Okay. Increasing persecution. Now, you and I, if the Lord tarries, we probably are going to know some of this because Christians are becoming very unpopular even in America. Okay, so they can't stand the persecution, so they have a solution. Can you imagine? They probably had a committee meeting, and they decide, what are we going to do because of all this persecution? And they said, we're going to turn our back on what we have confessed. We have been a believer, but we're going to turn our back on that, and we're going to go back over here to the temple. The temple is still standing at the time he's writing this because it was not destroyed until 70 A.D., and they think Hebrews was written around 64, 65 A.D. So this is their solution to the problem. I'm just going to, I've accepted him as my Messiah. I've been growing to a point. But, well, I can't stand that persecution, so I'm going to go back over here because who's persecuting them? The religious Jews. And so they're, gonna, they're just going to go back, and maybe the persecution will stop. So the Messiah, though, has he called them out of Judaism, and they now have a new life in Christ, just like you and I do. I keep hearing a phone. Okay, the old has been done away with, and now all has been superseded and fulfilled through Jesus Christ. Did he come to fulfill the law? 
Yes, and so this is the new life that's presented to them, and they are not to be going back over into the old life. Now, you and I as Gentile believers, you and I may not have that same problem, but the concern for you and me may be that I'm going to fall back into from whence we came. Probably legalism. Legalism. And then we start trying to do things on our own as opposed to living our life with the freedom we have in Jesus Christ. So this is written to Hebrew believers, and I am going to be belaboring the point so you have no doubt that this book is written to believers. And we're going to show several passages, I think, that will prove our point. They have trusted Jesus Christ for their salvation, but we understand I'm going to turn my back now, and I'm going to go away from what I have believed. And he's going to give them five warnings about this. Five warnings. So, I want us to see that these people are truly born again. He's going to encourage them, stay steadfast in Christ, because if you stay steadfast, will you have the strength and everything that you need to stand, even in persecution? Did he promise that to you and me? Yes. Now, we may not see how we can, because we haven't really experienced it yet, and we think about our weak flesh, but in Christ as we're surrendered and committed to him, if he allows that to come into our life, I look to him, and he promises that he will give me what I need. All right. Now, look, they, I believe they are truly born again and not just a mere professor. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brethren, a partaker of the heavenly calling. Would you say that to a non-believer? No, this is a believer that you're talking to. Chapter 4, verse 14, we notice that the author many times includes himself, we. Is he, the person that wrote Hebrews, is he a born-again Christian inspired by the Holy Spirit to write this book? And he includes himself, we have a great high priest in heaven. Then, in chapter 6, verse 4, you have become a partaker of the Holy Spirit. Would I tell that to a non-believer? Never. You have been persecuted because of your faith. And then he says in chapter 6, verse 10, you have faithfully ministered to the needs of others who have suffered. This is a believer. I want you all to get that because if you don't, when we get to chapter 6, verses 4 through 6, you're going to not understand it and we will be not putting it in context. In chapter 13, verse 9, he says, you were being seduced by teachers of false doctrine. Is that a believer? Yeah, we're the ones that are seduced by teachers of false doctrine. Verse 7, he says, you were in danger. You were about to forget the true word that your first leaders, Paul, James, and them, they have now, they're now dead, you're about to forget everything that they taught you. Now, he's encouraging them to stay steadfast in Christ. I've given you the five warnings, and we just have a glimpse of them because that's not really what we're studying. And he says five warnings in Hebrews, and I want you to notice each warning gets progressively worse. 
It's worse. So if you start, number one, you are drifting from the word. And if you start drifting, you're going to be neglecting the word. Here's my Bible sitting maybe right by where I sit, but I don't pick it up. I start neglecting it, and I'm drifting from this word. He says, if you do that, then you're going to doubt the word, and you're going to have a hardness of your heart. Warning number three, then you're a dull hearer. Somebody can be teaching or preaching or you're listening to somebody and you have absolutely almost no interest. You just wish they would hurry up. And it's going over your head. You don't want to understand it. And he says, if you do that, number four, you're going to be despising the word and you're going to be willfully sinning. And then number five, you'll start disobeying the word and you refuse to hear it. I don't even want to hear it. So those are the five warnings that he's giving to these believers. So all of these dangers do you see are only for the child of God. Because a non-believer is not going to drift from the word of God. They're not even in it. Now next he says, here's the danger of the unsaved. If, if this was unsaved people, what's their danger? That they never get saved and they wind up going to the lake of fire. That's the danger for them. So all of these dangers and warnings are for true believers. So Hebrews is written to those who are believers. They've accepted Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for their sin, but persecution is continuing and it's intensifying. So that's the context of the book and that's what's going on. Problem. You gotta patiently endure. That's the problem. He says, you've got to hold fast. In chapter 10, verse 23, he's going to tell them you have to hold fast and not give up thinking that this won't be worthwhile. Because we're going to, we may even get into situations and we think, I can't stand this, I can't stand the heat I'm taking or whatever, and we've got to know that this will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Well, I thought of a song, which is natural for me. So, this, I just wrote down the words. I'm not going to try to sing it. Some of you that really like to sing uh, could come take the microphone. Do you all remember this song? Sometimes the day seems long. Our trials are hard to bear. We're tempted to complain, to murmur and despair. But Christ will soon appear to catch his bride away, all tears forever over in God's eternal day. In the chorus, it will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Life's trials will seem so small when we see Christ. One glimpse of his dear face, all sorrow will erase. So bravely run your race till we see Christ. It's an awesome song. How many of you knew that song? A few. Yeah, okay. Now, here's the key for these believers. So I can be talking to y'all, all right? We're, all, we're believers. We've accepted Christ, but persecution's rising. The key, he says, for you to be successful, patience. You've got to have patient endurance. And in verse 10, 23, chapter 10, let us hold fast the profession of our faith with no wavering. Because you've got to know, is he faithful to what he's promised? See, so you've got to keep feeding your soul. 
then if persecution starts increasing here, you're going to have to feed your soul more and more. You've got to get in the Word and let it feed your soul and strengthen you. He also says we need to encourage one another. He said we are to encourage followers of Jesus Christ. Don't repeat the mistake that the first generation of the Israelites did during the Exodus. We remember no inheritance. I believe we're going to see a common theme through here about our inheritance. Remember, they could not enter the land. Are y'all with me? Everybody knows that. He brings them up to Kadesh Barnea, and they said, we will not enter because they believed the bad report. Are there giants in there? Yes. Was there also a land flowing with milk and honey? Yes, but all they could see were the giants, and they didn't remember his promise that he would give them victory, and if they would just go in, they would be victorious, and he would, he would make sure that they uh, captured the land, that they inherited the land, because he had given it to them. But because of their unbelief and sin hardened their heart, they would not believe and they were willing to give up their entire inheritance. Now, I'm just refreshing your mind. They had a physical land called Canaan. That was their inheritance, right? Had all kinds of enemies in it. But he said, I'm going to give you victory. They come up there and they say, we don't believe you. Do you see those giants? I'll give you victory. I don't believe you. That's exactly what they were saying. Unbelief that he would be faithful to his promise and do what he had said. And their heart became hardened. So I believe I can take these five warnings that are in the book of Hebrews, and I believe I can link them and trace them to a common theme because in the book of Hebrews, you're going to see referred over and over about the Israelites and that first generation who would not believe. And you know what I think the message is? The theme that we're going to look at here? I think he's saying, don't lose your inheritance and your rewards. And if you continue to turn your back and go away from Jesus Christ as the Messiah, and you get your back, yourself back over here because you won't grow up and mature, you stand to lose your inheritance and your rewards. And I think I can show this. Hebrews 1, verse 1. He says, long ago, God spoke many times and in many ways to our ancestors. He spoke through prophets, right? And even through some angels. And he goes on to say, but God in these last days, the last days started when Jesus was uh, crucified, buried, resurrected, and ascended to heaven. And then the church started, and then we're in the last days. God has in these last days spoken to us how? By his son, Jesus Christ, whom he has appointed, y'all get this, this is in chapter 1, heir of all things. And does he tell us that we can be a joint and a co-heir? Does he want to share his inheritance with us? Wow. Through whom also he made the worlds. And Hebrews chapter 1 goes on and talks about Jesus is superior. And he is the radiance of God's glory. He has an inheritance coming. He has a kingdom coming. And so in chapter 1 and all through Hebrews, God's final word is in his son. Who is greater? 
Jesus is greater. Is he superior? Yes, because they're going to compare him to the old sacrifices and so forth, to Melchizedek and so forth. Do we see the preeminence of Christ? He's first in everything. And that's what Hebrews 1 is going to tell us. And also, he has a kingdom coming. So here's how he sets the stage. Man, just think about Jesus. He is superior to everything. And you're going to turn your back on him? No, we're not. He says, we go on, and here's our first warning. You've got a danger of drifting. Turn the page from building up everything about Jesus and who he is. Turn the page, and here's what he says in chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, because of everything we just heard about Jesus, his kingdom, his inheritance, everything, we must give the more earnest heed to the things that we have heard. We have a message about Jesus, right? And he says, don't drift from this. Don't let what you've heard slip away from your thoughts. Always keep this focus. If we don't stay focused on our life after here, we will not make it. We have to stay focused. Paul says, I'm straining, I press forward, I forget what's behind, and I'm going for the prize of the upward calling of God in Christ Jesus. There is a coming millennial glory of Christ and the believer's impending inheritance and glory in Christ's millennial kingdom. Now, I'm going to say something right here that I wasn't planning on. I want us to remember, everything I'm talking about, inheritance and rewards, is for the thousand-year millennial kingdom. The Bible doesn't tell us much about eternity. So I'm, I know in eternity, all things are made new. I'm talking about the last thousand years of God dwelling with mankind, which would be his kingdom in the thousand years. So he goes on to say, if the word spoken by the angels was steadfast, when the angels spoke in the Old Testament and told the, the people something, was it a true steadfast thing that he told them, the angel told them, and it was unalterable. And he says, every transgression and disobedience that the people did in the Old Testament after hearing the word of the angel, it received a just recompense of reward. Wow. That was just from the angels. Okay, and you're going to see that phrase, just recompense of reward, over and over in the New Testament. It says, if that happened, how are you and I going to escape if I neglect so great salvation? which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord when he was on earth, and it was confirmed unto us by those that heard him. Many heard him, right? And then they wrote books, and it was passed on down. So we go to warning number two. We don't want to drift from what we've heard about Jesus, his kingdom, and he's superior. And you want to walk away from him and turn your back on him? No, because he's going to be victorious in the end. Keep your focus on how is all this going to end. Warning number two, the danger of disobedience and not entering into rest. And he says, wherefore, as the Holy Ghost says, today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your heart, as in the provocation as in, and as in the day of temptation in the wilderness when your fathers tested me, they tried me, they saw my work, everything I did, but for 40 years I was grieved with that generation. They discounted everything that he had done for them. 
and they would not enter. I was so angry with this generation and I said, they're always going astray in their heart and they did not know my ways and I swore in my wrath, they will not enter my rest. That's their inheritance. They can't have it. That is a sobering statement for you and me. They are our example. In 1 Corinthians, I think it's 10, about verse 12 or so, he says, all of these things are written for our admonition, right? We are to learn from what happened to them in the Old Testament. And he said, you hardened your heart, you wouldn't believe when, what I said. It's unbelief in a hard heart, you will not have your inheritance. That ought to hit us really hard. And he says in Hebrews 3.18, to whom did God swear that they would not enter into his rest? Those that were disobedient. Had he told them in the Old Testament to enter and claim their land? And they wouldn't. He also tells you and me, we are to enter and we are to go into the abundant life. How do I have the abundant life? I surrender to him, I have a clean vessel, and I put myself on the potter's wheel and say, I want you to direct my life, I want you to change me, because he says he will, and then I experience the abundant life where he gives me victory in my circumstances, he gives me victory over sin in my life, desperate dark times in my life, because he promised he would. He gives me victory over a giant of fear, a giant of anxiety, a giant of envy, a giant of jealousy, all of those things. He'll give you victory. So, I think these people are saved. We're going to continue that theme because I want you to know it without a doubt before we get to chapter 6. It's because of the message of the whole book of Hebrews, I believe the whole book of Hebrews is addressed to Hebrew Christians. I want you to notice all the exhortations in it. This is from chapter four. He's given two warnings, and now he's gonna go to chapter four, and he's gonna say, let us do these things. Notice it's us. The author is included. Let us fear that none of you will be found to fall short. Enter and claim. That's the crossing of the Jordan River, I believe, is where I agree to die to myself and I surrender everything to him for him to control me. Remember how many of the East Siders fell short? A bunch of them fell short and never got to go into their promised land. Verse 11, let us labor to enter in that rest. Do you think it takes some diligence and work and perseverance to enter it? It does. Verse 14, let us hold fast to the profession of our faith. Hold fast to it. Don't turn your back on it. And then verse 16, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. So he's giving them all these admonitions in chapter four. Now we're gonna go to the next warning. Chapter 5, verses 11, verse 11 through chapter 6, verse 20. And here's the warning where you and I are going to camp. The danger of not maturing, lacking spiritual growth. And just remember, I believe your inheritance and your rewards are hanging in the balance. That's what I believe this teaches. Now, chapter 5, verse 11. 
We've already been told not to drift and not to harden our heart. Now I come to chapter 5, verse 11. In the first 10 verses of chapter 5, he wants to have a deep, meaty discussion with them about Melchizedek, which is kind of a hard character to understand. And it's just going over their heads, they're dull of hearing, and they're not interested at all. Verse 11. Concerning him, Melchizedek, I've got so much I want to tell you, but it's so hard to explain to you because you're dull of hearing. Imagine you're talking to somebody and they have their fingers in their ears. I don't want to hear it. I'm not interested in that. You have a stagnant spiritual growth. All right, so that, remember I talked about the bookends of this warning. That's the first bookend. All right, now I'm going to go to the second bookend, which is in chapter 6, verse 12. Are y'all following me? Okay, so he says, I want to tell you all this stuff, but you're not ready. Why do I want to tell you all this? Here's the other bookend, because I don't want you to become lazy. I want you to learn to imitate the people who through faith and patience, what? Inherit what has been promised. You're acting lazy. You don't want to go into the deep things of the word. And why am I harping at you? Because I don't want you to become lazy. I want you to imitate people that showed faith and patience, and they're going to get everything they inherit. That word inherit, what has been promised. So that's the bookends of this warning. He says another translation, I like this one, be like those who stay the course, their faith is committed, and they'll get everything promised to them. That's his desire for these people, but they're acting like little babies and toddlers in Christ. We talked about that last week. So here, I'm trying to talk about Melchizedek. Y'all aren't listening. You're not, I'm saying what he said. Okay, I know you are. I'm just trying to put this simpler so we can understand it. Okay. He says, I want to tell you all about Melchizedek. What? Y'all aren't following me. Y'all aren't interested. So he puts his preaching on pause. He says, I got to pause this. You're not ready for it. So now from chapter 5, verse 11 to chapter 7, He's going to talk to them about being immature and how they need to grow up. And then chapter 7, verse 1, he takes off the pause button. I'm going to tell you about Melchizedek now. So y'all understand that. Okay, good. And he's going to admonish them. In these verses, he's going to rebuke them. He's going to warn them and admonish them. You have got to grow up spiritually. It is vital that you do. Okay, so verse five, chapter 5, verse 11 through chapter 6, verse 3, I want us to continue to see these people are believers. He says uh, they were babes in Christ. In chapter 5, verse 12 and 13, he's going to say, you are babies in Christ. But does that mean if they're in Christ, they have been born again? Yes, everyone's born a babe in Christ, right? And then we're supposed to start growing. He says, you don't need any new knowledge. You just need to take the knowledge you've already got and apply it in your life before you can keep growing. He also said, you have lapsed into dullness due to disuse. Where's my Bible? 
Where's the word? Oh, it's over here somewhere with dust. Know that you're not using it. That's why you're becoming dull of hearing. See, we're following those warnings. He said, they are saved. Did he tell them they should have been a teacher by now? You don't tell that to an unbeliever. You have been saved long enough that you should be teaching somebody what you know. So you don't tell that to an unbeliever. And then in chapter 6, verse 1, he's going to say, let us go on. We're going to get mature. We're going on to perfection. You don't tell that to a non-believer. Only to a believer, right? Okay. So are we understanding that the people he's talking to are born-again believers? That they're babies in Christ? Okay. Now... This does not mean when, when he says, let's go on to perfection or maturity in verse 1, this doesn't mean you need to be saved. No. You need to come to maturity in Christ. Notice he includes himself in verse 1. Let us go on to maturity. And he is a born-again believer or he wouldn't be writing this book inspired by the Holy Spirit. Now, lastly... They already knew and accepted the basic doctrines because in chapter 6, he's going to say, you got to get off the ABCs. Quit wanting to go over baby Jesus born in Bethlehem and all of that stuff. You need to get onto the meat of the word and grow up. So here are the things. This is from chapter 5, verse 12 and 13. These are the things he tells them. Do you see the congregation in the upper right corner? Babies in Christ. Oh, tell me about uh, Moses being in the little basket. Tell me about how David, yeah, David slew the giant. You know, tell me about Daniel and the lion's den. You just want to keep going over those things, but they knew those already. And here are the, here are the things he told them was wrong with them. Chapter 5, verse 12 and 13. You're dull towards the word. You're not sharing your faith with anybody. You're not using your time wisely. All you want is a diet of milk and no meat, and you're not skilled or experienced in using this word. Those are the characteristics of an immature baby. But then in verse 14, he says, he talks about mature believers. One verse on the mature believer. Well, how did they get there? How did they come to maturity? And he tells us in verse 14, The solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who by reason of use. Oh, we've got some people that have been using it. They have been using this, and their senses have been exercised, and they can discern good and evil. So to become mature, I have to start using this. (laughs) I have to start using it in more than five minutes a day. You have to start using it. Let it get into you. Reason of use and practice. Now, I'm going to unpack that verse. I don't do a lot of Greek very often, but I'm just going to do several uh, things to help us understand this verse better. Reason of use or practice is from the Greek hexus, and it means how did they become mature? They have it, it's a habit. 
It's a constant practice. It's a power acquired by you practicing. Use of their senses, they can perceive with the aid of their physical senses. We go on, it's a moral feeling to know what is right or wrong in God's eyes. I'm not talking about crimes and so forth. What is right or wrong in God's eyes for us as believers? The senses exercised is the Greek word gymnazo, which is like from a gymnasium where you exercise. And this, he says, they train with their full effort, complete physical, emotional force, like when working out intensely in a gymnasium. Many of us probably knew about that about 30 years ago. I don't know if many of you are intensely exercising now. Maybe so but you should be intensely exercising spiritually. Okay, he says their senses are exercised. This presumes full discipline, so you are in top working condition, full agility and skill and endurance. This is gained only from constant, rigorous training, and it conveys you become proficient through practice. It's like learning to play an instrument. Practice makes perfect. Yeah, I heard that a lot. Okay, discern properly through a thorough judgment, a discernment which distinguishes lookalikes, things that appear to be the same. Many are going to come in Christ's name, but they're not. They are another Jesus. So we have to be able to discern those things. Kalos is the word for good in Greek, and it means it's beautiful by reason of purity of heart and life. It's praiseworthy, morally good, and noble. Kakos is the Greek word for bad. It's evil. What is contrary to law, either divine or human? So it could even be, even be what's wrong in God's sight. So it says in verse 14, they have reason of use, they've become mature because they practice, they have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. So he says in verse 14, one more time, solid food, the meat, belongs to those who are of full age. That is, those who by reason of use, you've got your senses exercised so you can discern good and evil in God's eyes. Do you know our spiritual man has spiritual senses? All right, Psalm 34. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusts in him. If I go to Ephesians 3, 16, one of Paul's prayers in prison, I pray God, will, God would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, I want you to be strengthened with power through his spirit, where? In my inner man. And then in Matthew 13, he says, Blessed are your eyes because they can see. He's talking spiritually. And he says, And your ears because they hear. Now, as you and I feed on God's word, and I'm able to apply it all the time in my daily life, my inner spiritual senses get exercised. Can they become stronger? And they can become keen and sharp so you can discern. I love Charles Spurgeon's quote, I use it a lot. Discernment, it's not knowing the difference between right and wrong. It's between knowing, it's knowing the difference between something that's right and it's just almost right. It's not quite right. 
And you, that's a mature, you can discern that. So I love this scripture because something jumped out at me. 1 Timothy 4, 7 and 8. Exercise myself towards godliness. He says bodily exercise profits a little. We all say amen. <laughs> no, I'm teasing. Bodily, bodily exercise profits a little. But godliness is going to be profitable for what? All things. Now, this should jump out at you. Having promise of the life that is now, and godliness is profitable for the life that is to come. Man, I circled that in my Bible. The life that is to come. Godliness is profitable for my life that is to come. So the Israelites under Moses, they lacked all this discernment. They failed to go in and claim their inheritance. These believers, these Hebrew believers, they are about to make the same mistake. They need to go forward. They need to claim God's blessing, enter his rest, or if they don't, they're going to go backward and they're going to go wander aimlessly in the wilderness. Most Christians are betweeners. I think you will agree. Most people that are, that are believers, they're out of Egypt, out of the place of bondage, but they never get into the place of rest and rich inheritance, and they die and take their last breath in the wilderness. Wandering around, we have established that there are carnal Christians, baby Christians who do choose not to grow up. I love A.W. Tozer's comment on this. He said, Paul's discussion in Philippians 3, this is where he says, I've put everything behind and I'm pressing forward. This should challenge each of us with an earnest desire that we need to press forward. I want to become a special kind of Christian. He says, I don't want to be mediocre. Mediocres will resist the call to grow up. They resist it. They don't want any part of it. He said, many have the bland assurance. You know, I can quote the text of Scripture. I can quote, I can tell you the plan of salvation. But just because I can quote it doesn't mean I have experienced it. And he says, it is a mistake when people can quote it, maybe because they learned it in childhood or anything, and they think because I know it here that they've experienced it. That can lead a lot of people astray. He goes on to say, this strange belief that assumes, I can quote chapter and verse that I possess what I can quote. That's not always necessarily true. Because can you have a head knowledge that you never accept and apply, and it becomes a heart knowledge and by faith? You can. He says, I think this is one of the deadliest, most chilling breezes that ever blew across the church of God. That just because you can say this and you know it means that it is yours. And you have experienced it. So in chapter 6, verse 1, we're finally there. God calls us, let us go on to maturity. Grow up in Christ because he is not honored by our arrested development. When I put the brakes on and say, this is as far as I, I'm content. 
Don't ever be content with where you are spiritually. There's always more ground to gain, always more growth. Mediocrity is not the highest Jesus offers. And spiritual growth is not automatic. So you have people that are born again, and you just kind of leave them out there, even with yourself, and you think, well, I'm going to grow up now. It is not automatic. Never. You have to have a basic discontent with your present condition. That's where I finally got. And God just, I mean, he just, I say, knocked the knees out from under me. You have to be intentional. You have to desire it with every fiber of your being, and you have to be diligent, or it won't happen. So, we're coming to the warning. And he says, mediocre Christians and those that are wanting to get away from persecution and turn your back, and you just want life easier, you will resist the call to grow up and mature. So, here's my little frog again. I use him a lot. Don't settle for the creed of contentment. I come, I come to church on Sunday morning. I'm playing the piano. I go to choir practice. You know, I go to Bible study. I'm content. No. What you hear in church, what you hear here and in your Sunday school, it should give you an appetite that can't be satisfied. You ought to want more and more and more. So apprehended, you understand what an apprehended truth is? There are truths that you and I comprehend, right? I understand it. But boy, when it's apprehended by you and it becomes part of you and it's popping off the page at you and you make it a part of your life, there's a whole big difference in apprehending and comprehending. Apprehended Bible truths will awaken your desire for the Holy Spirit to continue working in you and you want nothing more than to move forward and keep going forward. God's word conveys there's all kinds of strong commands and appeals for us. You need to earnestly desire spiritual maturity. If you don't, it's not going to happen. Listen to some of the phrases in the Bible. Be diligent to enter. Wow, that sounds like it will take some, something on my part. Strive or agonize for the prize. <laughs> There's a prize, but it's not just going to be handed out. Y'all know that I don't believe serving in the millennial kingdom is going to be the same for everybody. I believe there are going to be, like there's degrees of hell. I believe there are degrees, I'm talking in the millennial kingdom, there are degrees of what people are going to be, their positions in his millennial kingdom according to their obedience here to the word of God. You strive or agonize for that prize. He says, you've got to mortify the deeds of the flesh. Well, I tell you, I tried to mortify them, and it didn't work. You know, I'm not going to be jealous anymore. Well, that didn't last. I'm not going to be envious anymore. I'm not going to have a critical spirit anymore. That did not last. Only he can do that in you and through you. He, we are told in Hebrews, we've got to pursue holiness. We are told and commanded to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. There are over 50 commands to a believer in the New Testament. And you and I need the Holy Spirit to be able to do them. So here, here's, here's a person that doesn't want to enter. They don't want to grow. Many born-again believers are going to put on the brakes. I don't want to be considered a fanatic. 
Because many of us, if you really are in the Word and you're growing and, and all you want to talk about is the Lord and how He's working in your life and the things He's doing, some people don't want to be around you because that's all you talk about. I don't care about the color of your lamp. I want discussions that encourage me, that exhort me. And, you know, if you like those kind of discussions, that's what I like. You know, some of those other things aren't that important. I want to encourage people to grow in Christ. And I want to grow in Christ myself. I need some of you to encourage me, to hold me accountable for that. I don't, if they consider me a fanatic, that's okay. So here's my little frog again. Am I a fanatic who desires to continue maturing spiritually until he calls me home? Or am I guilty of just nibbling at the truth of God's word? I'm just so content. I'm a common, mediocre Christian. If you don't move on, you're likely to make an irreversible decision that will keep you in a state of spiritual immaturity. And this is what I believe after studying the rewards and the inheritance are what's at stake. Not your salvation. Your salvation is secure in Jesus Christ. It's his finished work. But he tells us there are rewards and an inheritance. That's what I have the potential to lose. Now, he says, therefore, having left once and for all the elementary principles of the teaching of Christ, let us go on to perfection or maturity. He is emphatic. There is a peril, a danger, if you will not go on to maturity. If you resist, there is a danger. Now, I, I love this first verse after I went into the Greek to see what it really means. Let us be carried forward to maturity and press on. This is Strong's word 5342, Pharaoh, and it means you are going to be borne along like a ship by the wind. So y'all got your sailboat in mind? And the wind is taking it along, and the wind is going to help it to arrive at its destination. The Holy Spirit. I'm going to be borne along by the Holy Spirit. He drives me. He leads me. And he's the one that will get me to my destination of maturity. That's what this verse means. It's a passive voice. He says, you be born along like a ship by the wind. It emphasizes there is a, an exertion of a power in me, but it's from an outside source. But he lives in me. But he has come into my life. Is that true? And does he have the power to get me to maturity? But I have to surrender to him. I have to, or it will not happen. It conveys the thought of the need of me. I willingly surrender. Sometimes I've said, oh God, all I want is to become more mature, to grow in Christ. So I surrender to the Holy Spirit because he's the only one that can get me to the destination. He's the only one. It emphasizes the continual need. It's in the A-O-R-I-S-T, eros tense of the Greek, and it means a continual. I have to have him continually bearing me along. So if I have days and weeks that I don't get in the Word and I don't get on that uh, potter's wheel and I don't surrender to him and confess my sin and keep my vessel clean, what happens? Can he bear me along? No, I am a clogged up vessel. 
So I've got to get clean. Y'all understand this? Oh, good. You got to get clean. And then he can have control of you. And you just let him bear you along, leading you, and you're becoming more mature. You're growing in Christ. So the writer, notice the writer again lumps himself in this category. To continually be uh, born along, let us be carried along by God's Spirit. This is what I think discipleship involves. Learning to be carried along by the Holy Spirit. We can teach people a lot of facts, but they need to learn what it is to be surrendered to the Holy Spirit. Let Him grow them and mature them. Because just learning a bunch of facts is not going to do it. They may be able to quote scripture, but if they don't learn to yield to the Holy Spirit and let him do the work in them and through them, the growing is not going to happen. So he says, let us be carried forward to maturity. God is the one that enables us to progress as I yield to him, I receive the word, and then I act on it. I'm to submit to the Holy Spirit. His transforming power will complete the work in me. Did he start it? Yeah, when I was born again, I'm, I have the Holy Spirit within me, so he started the work, and I need to let him finish it, not me. So, oh, here's my potter's wheel. Okay, he's making a lovely vessel, is he not? Because this vessel is surrendered to him. And here is your promise. And I use Paul's four steps when you see a promise. Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun the good work in you, what's he promised me? He will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. I have a promise. So Paul says when you have a promise, you reckon on it. It's a, an accounting, a banking term. I am counting on this promise that if I surrender to you, you will complete the work in me. And then when I show up at the judgment seat, the work I will have gold and silver and precious stones. And then I surrender to him to do the work. And I thank him in advance. I just thank you that you're going to do that. Now, the third warning, which is where we are, amplifies the previous two warnings and shows it is very serious if believers fall away from the Lord. They have seen more than a simple glimpse of the Lord. So warning number three, these, these three verses are the most controversial probably in the Bible. And I'm telling you, the way I'm teaching it is the way I've come to believe it after a lot of study. So uh, it may be something new to you, but y'all are supposed to be a Berean. So if, if, if uh, what I'm teaching now in this next section is not what you have believed, then you go home and you study it. And then you come back to me if you can show me I'm wrong. Okay? Deal? Okay. okay. Now, the warning is about being idle. You have to take the whole context. That's why I've belabored the point. And I've spent a lot of time trying to get us in context. context. Idleness, stagnation, and Christian living can lead to falling. And falling will bring the rod and the staff of God because he says his name will not be reproached. So let's go on. Here are the three verses that have been lots of debate for hundreds of years. It is impossible for those who were once enlightened, 
They've tasted the heavenly gift. They've become a partaker of the Holy Spirit. They have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. Do you see that those are believers? Okay. If they fall away to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. Y'all just stay with me. Whenever scripture uses an important term in the very same book, the book in which it's defined is the way it will be used in that book to show its meaning and significance. All right, and I'm trying to stay in the context of Hebrews and other passages. So these people have five spiritual privileges. Let's look at them. Were they once enlightened? Yes, so they have been regenerated. They have the Holy Spirit. Now, it says, call to remembrance in chapter 10, verse 32, the same writer is going to use that term again. Call to remember the former days in which after you were illuminated or enlightened, you endured a great fight of afflictions. Do you remember the moment when the light of the gospel was apprehended by you for the first time? Yes, that's what he's talking about. You were once enlightened and when you finally, I remember where I was. I can still picture it. The conviction I'd been in a revival meeting as a little eight-year-old girl, the conviction I felt it each night, and the conviction was getting stronger. And finally, the light of the gospel was shined on me. I understood it as best a little eight-year-old can. I apprehended it, and I was enlightened. That's what he's talking about. Now, in chapter of Corinthians, we see the opposite here. We have the God of this age, who's Satan, right? Has he blinded people? They haven't believed yet, and why does he blind them? Because he doesn't want the light of the gospel to shine on them lest they would believe. All right, so that's what's going on. Now, the word once in this passage marks something that can never be repeated. That's an important statement. Once. It can never be repeated. Now, let's see also spiritual privilege number two. They have tasted of the heavenly gift. Let's go to Hebrews 2 verse 9. Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor, that he by God's grace would do what? Taste death for everyone. It said they have tasted of the heavenly gift. Both of these are in Hebrews. Now, it says, by the grace of God, Jesus tasted death for everyone. Was that a real experience for Jesus? Absolutely it was real. So if they have tasted of the heavenly gift, can we say that that was a real experience in their life? Yes. Now, tasting in the Greek signifies I hold something in common with someone else. It doesn't signify like in our culture. Okay, I tasted that and I don't like it. So I refuse to partake of it. You know, you give me coconut, I probably won't even taste it. So do you see that? Do you want to partake of this? You might taste it and you say, no, I don't want that. Okay, that's in our culture, not in the Greek culture. Christ partook of death for you and me completely so that we can partake of the gift of eternal life. 
Is that what he gave us? And it says God's gifts and his calling are without repentance. He doesn't change his mind so that you and I have eternal life as what? Our possession. If I have been enlightened and tasted of the heavenly gift, is it now mine? I am sealed to the day of redemption. So you and I hold this in common with Jesus Christ. His life became my life because he died our death for you and me. Now, it says number five, uh, number three, spiritual gift, they were made partakers of the Holy Ghost. The word partakers used in chapter 2, verse 14, 3, 1, and in 3, 14. It signifies in these verses, I'm a partaker of the Holy Ghost. Not just a participation, but that personal character is in me. I have it. It's gained because of a vital relationship that I now have with Jesus Christ. Now, the personal character of the human race, was it flesh and blood? Yes, but to be a partaker of the Holy Spirit now is to have the personal character of him, of the person governed by him. I'm a partaker. Does he now own me? He governs me. That's what this is talking about. Privilege number four, they have tasted of the good word of God. They experienced a special utterance in which they realized what they hear is actually from God. They have tasted that. And they have tasted of the powers of the world to come and the powers of the millennial age. Do you agree with me that these are believers? Great. That's step one. So these can only be a believer. They're once enlightened. They have the gift of eternal life. They have the Holy Spirit. They partake of the New Testament revelation. And they govern their life accordingly. And they have experienced the power of the new birth. I know I'm talking fast. Every one of these statements is in the aorist tense. What does that mean? These are never repeated acts of God's working. Never repeated. It shows the writer is speaking to believers in whom God himself has performed operations. Did he save you and put the Holy Spirit in you? That's an action that will never be repeated is what it's saying here in these verses in the Greek. If they had not been saved, could they have experienced those things? No. But since they are saved, the Bible says these are acts that can never be repeated. So hopefully y'all are following that. So what is the author saying? There's our question. Are they saying you can be saved and then you can be lost and then you got to be saved again? I don't believe that, but I know some people believe that. So let's look first of all, what can it not say? It cannot teach that you can be saved and lost and saved over again. It says that is the impossibility. And so I know that some people believe this, but I want to say if you are born again, people can turn and maybe they're, be, they're in a carnal life. But if they were born again and have the Holy Spirit in them and they've tasted they can never, because your salvation doesn't depend on you. It is the finished work of Jesus Christ. And that's what I believe. Now, what does it teach? So here is my theory. I believe it teaches that there's a danger of relapse and you can for forfeit your inheritance. And when I do lesson 
uh, warning number five, next week we'll even see it more. The unity of these five, these five things build on one another. That's why I gave them to you in order, because you start with just drifting. And before you know it, by number five, you are going to be in total rebellion. And he says he wants to press on and obtain everything that God promises to faithful overcomers. Notice in Revelation 2 and 3, all these wonderful promises are to those who actually do the act of overcoming. Am I an overcomer in Christ? Positionally, I am. But is my life, am I an overcomer all the time? No. Because we don't overcome all the time, even though positionally I am, but experientially I don't overcome all the time. But as you're growing in Christ, and a prayer that I pray is that my life lived every day would be closer to the reality of my position in Christ, who I am in Christ. Are you all with me? Okay. And remember all these warnings, he keeps going back and referring to the Israel generation. So I'm trying to put the, keep everything in context with the theme of Hebrews. So they have understood the glory that awaits Christ. That was in chapter 1. And they've tasted of the heavenly gift. And his metakoi, there's a new word for y'all. He's going to have metakoi in the coming millennial kingdom, a partaker. It's koinia, those who have fellowship with him. But they have turned their way to go back to the world. If I quit living for him and I don't want to go on and grow up and mature, I am risking a lot in the next world. Now, they're in the same position as the Exodus generation at Kadesh Barnea. I'm not going in there. They refuse. Your inheritance is there waiting. I'm not going in. Now, is that basically what they said? They knew what it was. They had the reports. But they didn't trust. It was unbelief, and they hardened their heart. Those Israelites angered God so thoroughly, he swore on his own name, you will not enter the promised land. The promised land is not heaven. We're not talking about salvation. Because the promised land, Canaan, is full of enemies, it's full of bloodshed, it's full of battles. That's not heaven. It's the promised land, the inheritance. God made up his mind, and he's the one that would not repent or change his mind. He said, I'm angry with this generation. They go astray, they don't know my ways, and I swore they will not enter. They refuse to grow, they refuse to take their inheritance, and they refuse to obey. He said, okay you will not have it. They looked away from the things of God. That's what these Hebrews are getting ready to do. That's what a lot of believers sitting in the pews are doing. Looking away from the things of God and that land that was set before him. You've got this wonderful inheritance. Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 tells you all about the spiritual blessings that we have right now. So we have a spiritual inheritance now. I've got a, another inheritance coming in the next life. And in Luke 9:62, Jesus told them, anyone who will put their hand to the plow and then they look back, they're not fit for the kingdom of God. So Hebrews 6, we're going to move on. Have they had a need, a problem? They've been warned. Let's look at a solution. Now, and we go to Hebrews 6, verse 7. 
and he talks about soaking it in. The earth or the land that drinks in the rain often falling on it, and it'll produce a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed, receives the blessing of God. So here's a picture of a field. Now, Paul talks about us being a soldier in the army, right? He also talks about us being an athlete. And now he also talks, if you like, agriculture about having a field and your crop. What's your crops? What are your crops going to look like? Knowledge and wisdom. He says, if you soak up spiritual knowledge, you're going to start producing fruit in your field, right? But higher fruit, the higher your fruit production, the more you're growing, you'll be able to choke out the weeds. So look at your field. It's beautiful. I don't see any weeds in it. But that spiritual maturity, it's growing in Christ. And the fruit that's being produced on your plot of ground, your field, is uh, favorable. And this would bring gold, silver, and precious stones at the judgment seat. Verse 13 of Matthew, chapter 13. He that received seed into the good ground is he, you hear the word, you understand it, bearing fruit, and you bring forth fruit. Some people will have a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. Talking about the fruit of the Spirit. Every believer bears the same kind of fruit. And it just shows that we are a child of God. It's the fruit of our Christian character. Remember, he's the one that will uh, manifest the fruit of the Spirit in us. He produces it as we mature in Christ. And here the author says, here's my concerns for you people that are saved. But you're babies in Christ. He's concerned lest you just rest on your achievement. Oh, this sounds like the church of Sardis. Church of Sardis. If you rest on your achievement and you will not turn and press on towards full maturity, let the Holy Spirit take you. That's my concern, that you will not. You're just resting on your achievements. So he says... He talked about the good field. Now he says, but if your field bears thorns and briars, listen carefully. Y'all still hanging with me? It is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. All right, we're talking about the field and what's coming up on it. They said, we don't want to grow, we don't want to mature. So what's their field going to have? Thorns, briars. Now, Warren Wiersbe says, A field proves its worth by bearing fruit. A true believer, as he makes spiritual progress, will you be bearing fruit for God's glory? Yes, because it's always for his glory. The thorns and the briars are what are burned, not the field. Because everywhere we're going to go to the judgment seat, all of our foundation is who? Jesus Christ. That never gets burned. It's what you build on your foundation that can get burned. That's what's getting burned here. Now, the strong language that I just read about the briars and thorns getting burned leads many expositors and commentators to conclude that the individual described is an unbeliever. You will read that in many commentaries. You will hear it preached. I'm telling you what I've come to believe by trying to put everything in context and show these are believers. 
The metaphorical language has been interpreted as referring to eternal punishment in the lake of fire. That's what many will say this is teaching. However, it should not be and cannot be based on the fact who is he addressing. I believe he's addressing believers through this whole passage. So, in verses 9 through 12 of chapter 6, here's what he's going to call them. You are beloved. The writer is persuaded, look, I see things in you that accompany salvation. You cannot be persuaded of fruit if you don't possess the tree and the life that's in it. He goes on to say, you've already produced this fruit. I've seen it in you. And they're exhorted to be an imitator of those who through faith and patience inherit everything God promises. You don't tell that to an unbeliever. So I believe all of this is to believers. And I don't believe he's talking about people winding up in the lake of fire. Let's go to the judgment seat, and I think this will help clear things up. Does God intend to judge all of the believers at the judgment seat of Christ? 1 Corinthians 3. And it's going to be, our works are going to be tried by fire. I have a field. I have a foundation, so do you. Our foundation is, our field is always Jesus Christ. What am I building on mine? What are you building on yours? And this passage says the result of fruitlessness. If I'm not getting any fruit out there, it's all thorns and briars. My field, the fruit of it, is going to be rejected and disapproved. But I still have my field because my field is Jesus Christ. All right? Now, we go to 1 Corinthians 3. It says, For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is whom? Jesus Christ. And we have the same foundation because it's the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And that's our position. So we all start on equal ground. True? Yes. Now, if any man build on this foundation... This is our experience. This is our growing in Christ. This is our letting the Holy Spirit control us. And so hopefully we will have gold and silver and precious stones on our, on our foundation, on our field. If I allow the Holy Spirit to control me and I'm surrendered to him, then these works, this fruit is going to be gold, silver, and precious stones. But if I do everything in the flesh and I'm over here and I am not growing in Christ spiritually, but yet, I'm down here playing the piano. I'm down here teaching a Sunday school class. I'm helping feed the poor. I'm doing this, and I'm doing that. But if I am not growing spiritually, it's going to be wood, hay, and stubble. Do y'all see that? This is what I believe. All right, now, let's keep going. He said, each one's work is going to be made manifest or clear on that day when you and I are at the judgment seat. The day will declare it because it's going to be revealed by fire. And the fire will try every man's work, not how much you have. It's the quality of what sort it is. It's the quality of the work. Let's go on. It says, if your work abides, it comes out of the fire. Look. You have some gold and silver and precious stones. You get a reward. That's exactly what this is saying. It says, if any man's work is burned, 
Is the foundation still going to come out of the fire unsinged? Yes, because the foundation is Jesus Christ. Listen to this verse carefully. If your work is burned, you're going to suffer loss. What is there to lose? My rewards, my inheritance. But he will be saved yet so as by fire. There's your carnal Christian. Standing at the judgment seat, they are born again, but they have not grown spiritually. They have rejected the call to maturity, and everything they're doing is nothing but wood, hay, and stubble, and it will be a pile of ashes. And here's our word at the judgment seat. You get a just recompense of reward, which we've already looked at in Hebrews. So I believe it's possible to never mature and remain a spiritual infant for life. You can be busy bee down here and doing a lot, but you're not growing spiritually. Years of wasted surf service will only produce a pile of ashes at the judgment seat of Christ. And believers, I believe, who rebel against God, they will not submit to sanctification. They're going to miss out on the blessings of their inheritance now. Because you can have victory over sin in your life now. And they're going to suffer loss at the judgment seat of Christ. But it says he will be saved, yet so as by fire. A very popular prophecy teacher says they'll get to heaven with their tail feathers burning. <laughs> Pretty descriptive. So scriptures implicitly state Judgment is going to come from the judgment seat of Christ with a just recompense of reward. That's what Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians and in 2 Corinthians 5, 9 and 10. There are positive and negative results. Here is a clear case we have of burning being associated with someone who is still saved. It's the works. It's the fruit that gets burned. The portion here which is relevant to our discussion is the burning in Hebrews 6.8, I don't believe is talking about a believer going to hell because he fell away. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. It's the thorns and the briars that are burned, not the person. This is why there is a need to go on and a warning against don't ever go back because you cannot regain wasted years. And some of us have a lot of wasted years. This illustration of Hebrews 6, 7, and 8, I believe fits perfectly. So everything I produce is either for blessing or burning. It's not the believer that will be burned, but what he has produced. Often we take the blessings of rain and sunshine that God gives us but we only produce thorns and briars. So here, he's going to now give him an exhortation. He says, Beloved, I'm confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though I've been talking like this. He said, I'm confident of better things than you. Verse 10, God is not unrighteous to forget your work, your labor of love, which you have showed toward his name, and that you have ministered to saints, and you're still ministering. The fruit in their lives, because of their love, they had worked and labored for the Lord. These are things he said that accompany salvation. And he goes on to say in verse uh, 
The next verse, we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope for how long? Till the end. Do you and I have a hope, an anchor in Jesus Christ? Will he perform everything that he said? He will. And here we're back to our bookend. He said, this is why I've laid all this on you. I don't want you to become lazy. I want you to imitate people who through faith and patience will inherit everything that has been promised. Be diligent to the end and inherit the promises of God. He says, don't be lazy and follow people who are mature in Christ. Jonathan Edwards said, it becomes us to spend this life only as this is our journey towards heaven, to which we should subordinate all other concerns in our life. Why should we labor for or set our hearts on anything else but that which is our proper end and our true happiness? I resolve to endeavor to obtain for myself as much happiness in the other world as I possibly can. We sometimes go to extremes to plan everything in this life, but then we're so careless about the life to come. A guy who's a Romanian uh, preacher, he said, we are formed, shaped, and tested for reliability. Based on our degree of trustworthiness, we'll be, we will be given a position of responsibility in the kingdom. This is not a privilege which is earned in the usual sense. It is a gift of God's immeasurable grace. Based on our temporal efforts here on earth, our inheritance is a precious commodity, and it can be lost. Paul's in Ephesians 4, he says, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord, I beseech you, will you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you have been called, that you may walk in a manner worthy of the God. What has he called us into? His kingdom and his glory. Jesus, some of his last words, I'm coming quickly, hold fast what you have, that no one will take your crown. And what did he tell Sardis? You have got a few names there, even in Sardis. They haven't defiled their garments. And they're the ones that will get to walk with me in white because they are worthy. Let's pray. Father, I just pray that um, the Holy Spirit will work in each of our hearts and lives this coming week, Lord, and that we will answer the call to keep going, to persevere, and Lord, that we will allow the Holy Spirit to keep growing us, that he will bear us, he, we will be born like a ship, and the Holy Spirit will mature us and help us to reach our destination in a mature fashion. We just praise you for that, in Jesus' name, amen.